This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone. Uh, Thank you so much for being here for Silver City Church's inaugural day of Lord's Day worship. We are ready to go forward into Mount Sterling with the Great Commission to see the kingdom come here in Mount Sterling. So as we have just worshiped through song and through prayer, we are going to now come to worshiping through the word in the sermon. Silver, Silver City Church breathes her first Lord's Day breath today. On this day, October 9th, her little stem pops out of the ground, reaching toward heaven while being rooted in the word of heaven. To press the metaphor into your mind, Silver City Church is a church plant. Throughout scripture, we read of agricultural metaphors. Uh, Psalm 1 speaks about the righteous man being like a a tree planted by streams of water who bears fruit and has a continuous supply of nourishment. One of the very first parables Jesus ever told in his ministry was the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, which describes a farmer, so to speak, Jesus, the farmer, spreading the seed of his word. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul, rebuking the Corinthians for their factitiousness, tells them that he planted another preacher named Apollos, watered, and God gave the growth. So scripture is concerned with planting and with farming and with cultivating because God's preeminent work was planting a garden temple that he and his creation communed together therein in Genesis 1. So when we talk about church planting, using the term planting should point us back to scripture, but it should also point us out into nature because right here in the middle of Kentucky, the bluegrass state, we understand planting, don't we? We understand farming. This is a farming state. This is an agricultural state. I mean, for crying out loud, we're known as the bluegrass state. Grass, it's in the ground, right? Right? Okay, just making sure. You don't personally farm or or garden, which is small-scale gardening. I assure you, if you live in this area, you know someone who does. These farmers and gardeners, they are professional planters, so to speak not only on on, um, knowing how to plant crops and take care of them, but making them healthy and causing them to grow with nutrients. And even more, they also know what to look for concerning diseases and pests and plants that maybe look like what they thought they planted, but turn out to be imposters. So today I want us to see Silver City as a seed in the ground. Seed in the ground. I also want us to know what to expect, just as a farmer knows what to expect when they plant a mess of, uh, of potatoes or corn or uh, the personal favorite at the Hill household this past summer was okra. It grew so large. You have to know what you're dealing with. You know, wouldn't it be nice if there were a field guide, an almanac, a blueprint, a compass, a map, whatever you would want to call it, that would give us direction on what to look for and how to better cultivate the planting endeavors the Lord has set before us as tenants of his field. Uh, Wouldn't it be nice if there was a field guide to church planting? Well, by God's grace, there is. There is such a field guide to church planting, and it's one inspired by God himself. The field guide is found in a small letter penned to a guy named Titus by a chosen servant of God named Paul. The book of Titus gives us a crash course on what a healthy church is to consist of, a body of gathered people who join in unity, who join in the truth of Scripture to become more like Christ, 
filled with all boldness and hope and good works and self-control who all make an impact for the kingdom of God and how they live. So this morning, let us read the map. Let's survey the field, so to speak. Let us initiate our study of the field guide of Titus. Would you please turn in your Bibles, if you are willing and able, to Titus chapter 1. We'll be in verses 1 through 4 this morning. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. Hear the living word of God, the inspired word of God for you this morning. Titus 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us that we don't deserve. God, you are sovereign in the ministry of this, this new church and this nascent work we have set before you. Father, would you guide us and direct us? Let nothing be done on our power. Would you allow us to make an impact in Mount Sterling, Montgomery County, and ripple out to see kingdom come uh, and your will be done? Father, I pray that you would guide us by your spirit this morning uh, concerning your word and that I would not be a, gang, a um, banging gong, that you would guide me along by the same Holy Spirit who breathed out the very scriptures that we seek to examine this morning. Would you give the gift of faith and the gift of repentance and the gift of sanctification? And would you soften hearts that the seed of your word may find good ground? We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. If you look briefly in your bulletin that was given to you this morning, one of our core commitments here at Silver City is expositional preaching. Now, you may not know what that is. It's a nice $10 word that just simply means verse by verse. We pick a book of the Bible, and then we go through it verse by verse, almost word by word sometimes. So guess what that means? Guess what that means? We're going through the whole book of Titus. We've started it. We're going to finish it. We don't start uh, things and, and not finish them around here. We're going to go through Titus. So if you know me, we'll cultivate for a while on this thing. I think we'll probably be done around... Christmas, right when Advent starts. So with this in mind, as we begin this little letter this morning, we need to do some preliminary background work. If, if Titus is a field guide, and it is, to healthy church planting and healthy church people, we need to make sure we understand how to read what is given to us and what has been given to us graciously. You see, in, in God's sovereignty and His providence, He chose to reveal Himself to His creation, not only in creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, trees, birds, plants, all of these things, but through special revelation, the Bible, His uh, inspired Word. And His inspired Word is a literature. And all literature has rules that must be followed to properly understand what's being conveyed. You know, it's I, I don't normally call people out in my, when I preach, but um, my former high school math teacher is here to support the endeavors of Silver City this morning, uh, Miss Martha Payne. She's my neighbor, too. Martha, you math teacher, you were brilliant. I don't understand that stuff. There are rules with math, right? And you can't break those. They're always the same, right? So often, we forget that that's with literature as well, and we see Scripture in numerous ways, ripped out of its context to be placed on a shirt or a coffee mug. Or, and boy, it sounds really nice when they're trying to sell it to you that way, but boy, that scripture has nothing to do with what they're putting on that mug or shirt or bumper sticker when you put it right back into its proper context. It's the fallen human condition to rip things out of context, to twist into our own purposes and for our own purposes because this is what we were taught to do by Satan himself. We must not, from the get-go, do this. Context matters for everything. Every word, every action, every idea, 
in all of life, especially pertaining to Scripture. So when examining the context of any portion of Scripture, before you can apply it to your life, you have to know how to make yourself a little HLT sandwich. It's just like, exactly like a BLT, except it doesn't have bacon or lettuce or tomato. HLT. History, literature, theology. All contextual examination concerning Scripture revolves around these three principles. And many times they are overlapping, and as we continue through Titus in the coming weeks, you will see how they overlap. But we have just been airdropped into this big fertile field, and we need to get to the high ground and kind of survey the land, get an eagle-eye view before we get into the particulars and start plodding away and cultivating the ground before us. So briefly, what is our context of Titus? All right, Titus. Titus is a short letter written by the Apostle Paul to a protege named Titus. The Apostle Paul was a man chosen by God himself to help establish the institution of the church, which is the universal body of blood-bought believers. Paul formerly hated the church and killed many who followed this so-called Christ. You can read about that in Galatians and in Acts, specifically in Acts and also in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ chose Paul and changed his heart to become the trailblazer, so to speak, of the church and one of the most important figures in history. I would argue, next to Jesus himself, the second most important figure in history, in world history. Paul wrote half of the New Testament and was solely responsible, guided by the Holy Spirit, of course, in planting a vast number of churches in the early Christian era between 40 and 65 AD. So many churches, we, we probably would never know how many he influenced or directly planted. This letter to Titus is what is known as a pastoral epistle. There are three pastoral epistles. An epistle is just a word for letter, if you don't know that. And there are three pastoral letters in the New Testament, first and second, Timothy and Titus. It's T3, all of them are T's. Timothy, Timothy, Titus, right? T Timothy was also a protege of Paul's, very similar to Titus. Uh, and, and Timothy was up in Ephesus for most of his pastoral career, if you want to call it a career. It's calling for sure. Both Titus and Timothy worked with Paul in the Spirit, guiding churches and guiding the planting efforts within the context which the church found herself initially, which was the Roman Empire. The pastoral epistles are personal letters. They're personal letters from a sage pastor to a young pastor to seek to help clarify and direct the mission of that particular church or region. That is why if you read the Timothy letters in Titus, you'll notice there are many similar aspects, vast overlap, sometimes verbatim. Timothy, again, was in Ephesus and Titus was in Crete. They're in different places, same jobs, same callings, different skill sets, but they had the same job. These personal letters were meant to be shared with the whole church after being received by the intended recipient. This is very common in the Greco-Roman world at this time. The letter to Titus was likely written between 62-64 AD while Paul was in the Macedonia area. Titus, the recipient of the letter and the, who bears the name here, uh, was the protege again of Paul's and was a Gentile. He was a non Jew, who was likely converted under the ministry of Paul when he was in the Antioch of Syria area, maybe with a fellow named Barnabas, we're not sure. Not much is known of Titus. Outside of this short letter here before us this morning, uh, he's only mentioned in Galatians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians, and 2 Timothy. Uh, from these other sources, these other scriptures here, we can kind of piece together a sketch of who Titus was, what he was like. He was abundantly trustworthy, given that Paul trusted him with money that was going to a specific church. He was a talented teacher, 
and a pastor, given that he is instructed to teach the scriptures and care for people and kind of round people up and kind of boost morale. He's also witty and thick-skinned, given that Paul also entrusted him to go to Corinth, who was a notoriously bad church. They could not get their act together. And, and Titus hand-delivered a severe letter to that church to basically kick some tail and take names and get it in order. So he was a no-nonsense guy. So here in the letter bearing his name, Titus is on this little Mediterranean island of Crete, which is about 500 miles away from where Paul is writing at the time. Paul had been shipwrecked on Crete uh, in the book of Acts, but that's probably not where he established it. And based on the knowledge that he has uh, of the area, the way that Paul talks about the culture there, he's been there before, either before the shipwreck or after sometime that, that we just don't know and is not recorded for us in Scripture. Paul left Titus in Crete to help organize the early church there. And Crete was a rough place. <laughs> it, was, um, it was not a place that you would want to get shipwrecked on, to be quite honest with you. Back in this time, if someone was called a Cretan or you uh, played the Cretan, that meant you were untrustworthy, self-centered, a deceitful jerk. The whole letter of Titus is only 600 and 95 words. And let me tell you, some of y'all in here that I know, you tweet and thread and Facebook post and text more words than that on a daily basis. And so the whole letter is, is Paul spurring Titus on to finish up the work that, that he and Paul started there in Crete. It's the same work, the same work that we have set right here before us in Mount Sterling in Montgomery County. Different city, different location, different time, same job. Given that this letter is so short, one would expect it to lack depth. You know, but the old saying goes, what big things come in small packages or great things come in small packages. This is one of the most condensed jam-packed, shaken-together, overflowing theological books in the entire Bible. And you can tell based on the tone as we read through it, it's very urgent. It doesn't waste any words. Paul's not wasting words. It's meticulous. It's thought out. It is straight to the point. And just like a field guide, it is jam-packed with good info and beckons us to read it carefully, thoughtfully, so that we don't bite into a nightingale when we have mistaken that nightingale for a tomato. So in this short letter, which is, again, a par excellence example of a Greco-Roman letter of the time, this short letter is concerned with church planting and has at the core this big theological idea, this big flashing neon sign. Here's this big idea that the church at Crete had to get together, had to get through their heads, and that we at the outset have to get in ours. Being a Christian, one who professes to know God, means having correct doctrine and correct conduct. Being a Christian means having correct doctrine, right teaching, right knowledge about God, and correct conduct, correct living. You can't have one without the other. Paul is telling Titus he needs to make sure the church understands it can't just have a bunch of facts, knowledge, information without a change in behavior, without that, that knowledge working itself out into daily life. And conversely, it can't just go through the motions. These people can't just go through the motions with no ascription to truth as if they are mere robots. And these are two ditches that are still beside the road of the church in modernity uh, that she has to steer out of so often. So that is why Titus is so timeless and timely. That's the context. That's the zoomed out eagle eye on top of the hill looking over the plot of land view of the background this morning. And as we go through this little letter, we'll undoubtedly examine more of that HLT sandwich and let you bite into it along the way. Because that HLT sandwich is simply reading the Bible for all it's worth so you can live your life in light of all it's worth. So 
with the remainder of our time, this blessed morn, this joyous morning that we get to celebrate, let's examine the initial four verses of Titus. Let's unpack these verses, uh, these first four verses, which are pretty much a giant run-on sentence in the original language. I guess Paul needed to learn what a period was. And in these four verses, uh, there are four main themes and talking points Paul is going to elaborate on and expound upon in various ways throughout the remainder of the letter. So, I know it seems like we've done a lot so far, but let's survey the map before we go any further so that subsequent sermons really start to make sense. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the elect of God, uh, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, excuse me, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. We have established who Paul is already, right? If you're new to this whole Christianity thing, if you're a guest and you, you have no idea what this is, and you want to know more about this Paul character, maybe you've heard about him, I urge you to read the entire book of Acts. It's a great introduction to what the church is like and some of these people that you'll hear about, especially Paul. Um, notice in verse 1 how Paul describes himself. He describes himself in a twofold manner. A servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Twofold manner here. The first title, servant of God, is actually better rendered slave of God. It's better rendered slave of God. Servant connotes a, a, like a Batman and Alfred type deal. Like, yes, yeah, Master Wayne. I'm, you know, it's not really that. Doulos, the Greek word here, it's slave. It means someone who is owned or um, chained to someone, fettered to something. So Paul is saying here he is a slave of God, one who is owned by another, one who is at the mercy of another, given a job, a task to do by a master. The title slave or servant of God is really the universal apostolic title, meaning all the writers of the New Testament, Peter, John, Jude, James even, they use this, this moniker, so to speak, in all their writings. However, in all but two places in the entire Testament, the term slave of is usually constructed as slave of Christ. Slave of Christ. Only right here in the introduction to Titus and in the introduction of James do we have the, the title Slave of God. So what? That, that doesn't matter, does it? Eh, close enough. Same thing, right? Well, no, actually, it's not. This is abundantly important, and it shows Paul's concern for a unified church a concern we hear at Silver City Echo. We want a unified church. Crete was an island full of mostly Gentile pagans who worshipped mostly female deities, similar to the ones found in Ephesus like uh, Artemis, Diana. Uh, there was a, a small Jewish population and presence on the island, and as we will see later in our exploration of Titus, there's some false teaching going around the church in Crete, which is a mixture of incorrect pagan thought and incorrect Jewish thought, and it's mixing together and threatening the truth of God's word in the church. And this makes sense, obviously. You have the Church of Christ, which is made up of both Jew and Gentile, every nation, tribe, and tongue. So you're going to get this weird mixture of things. So Paul, right here and only here, in all of his writings, intentionally changes his title from slave of Christ to slave of God. Why is that? Because the Jews there on Crete knew that throughout the Old Testament, the former covenant, the great leaders of the faith like Moses and like David and like all the prophets, they referred to themselves or were called slaves of God. Paul is in a roundabout way establishing his authority in this letter. He's not bossing and demanding authority. He is saying, hey, church at Crete, I've been chosen by God. I did not choose him. He chose me. And in the same line, he chose Moses and David and the prophets. I stand in that line. 
And what Titus is going to tell you, it's not from him. It's not really from me. It's from God who has chosen me, the most undeserving of sinners. Now, on the flip side of that, Paul also says that he is an apostle of Christ. Apostle here does convey the special office of apostle, which was limited to men chosen by Christ himself. But here it, it more forwardly means one who is sent, a messenger, an envoy, a representative. Paul uses this title for the Gentiles who would not know, uh, some probably are not a single thing, of the Messiah and the scriptures that foretold his coming and kingdom. Paul is, in effect, using this title to also convey the authority given him by God to tell the Gentile believers in Crete, hey, I'm a messenger of God. I've been sent by him. You're a part of this bigger picture that your Jewish brothers and sisters are in. And they kind of halfway know the message. I'll fill everybody in. Paul is a slave of God and a messenger of Christ. That means the content of this letter is not concerned with what Paul thinks or some of his buddies think or anything like that. It's concerned with what God thinks, given that a slave obeys his master and a messenger does not bring his own message. Next, Paul begins listing the overarching purpose of the letter he has written to Titus, and the purpose comes through these themes that he puts in his introduction. First, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul's not saying in a, a pretentious, self-centered way that he's a slave of God and a messenger of Christ for God's chosen people. Like, oh, look at me. God's chosen me for your faith. Oh, I'm so important. No, he is saying his status as a slave of God for the Jew and a messenger of Christ for the Gentile is in accordance with the faith of God's chosen people. His status corresponds with the unifying faith, the identical faith, the same faith that is given to God to those who he would call unto himself. It's a unifying faith that unifies forgiven sinners with one another and with God. Paul is saying here, that he doesn't have a different kind of faith, like, oh, I was chosen by God, I've got a, this first-tier faith, and you've got second-tier faith, and some of you got third-tier faith. No, this is the once-for-all faith delivered unto the saints, as Jude 3 speaks of. This faith that Paul is in accordance with is also in accordance with the knowledge of the truth, the truth, and notice that there is a definite article there, which accords with godliness, or to state it another way, the content, the substance of the unifying faith is found in the correct knowledge of the truth of God and in correct conduct and how one lives, which is the outworking of that correct knowledge. See how this is all piecing together. Throughout the two letters to Timothy and to this one right here in Titus, Paul uses two uh, notation shorthands for the gospel. They're found right here. The faith and knowledge of the truth. This signifies having trusting and saving faith based in the knowledge of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Also right here, as in the two letters to Timothy, Paul uses a word that is almost solely unique to the pastoral epistles, and we wouldn't think that it would be, but it is. The word is godliness. Godliness. This term means to live in accordance with what you believe. To press this further, this means you are desiring to be like God in His holiness, which He calls you to emulate True regenerating knowledge of the gospel, legitimate faith given by God, always produces godliness. You cannot separate them or have one without the other. Paul then shifts to a glorious vision of the purpose of God's chosen people. It's not just pulling people out of you know, the battlefield. 
if we're just helicoptering them off of the, the tower. No, he, he saves them and then gives them a purpose. This unifying faith that he gives them and the correct knowledge about himself produces something in them, lives that they are to live for him, lives that he would have them live. Uh, verses 2 and 3 here. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God's chosen people are given a unifying faith, correct knowledge, right, correct knowledge, and a correct living or correct purpose for living, and it's all being eternally united with God. It's all within His purpose and towards His purpose. The hope of eternal life is not a wishful type of thinking like this pessimistic hope, like, oh man, I just hope that no one's in my seats today. Oh, I hope that we can get into Cattleman's. You're not because we're eating all this brisket today, right? Thanks, Rob, for doing all that. Now, the Christian hope is a, a sure certainty. It is, it is steadfast. It is grounded. It is rooted on truth because our hope is based in the one who gives the faith, the knowledge, the truth. The godliness, it's not based in something that's fickle. Our hope is built on nothing less than God himself. This sure certainty is that God has chosen his people to save them, to give them faith in correct knowledge of him and in his message and in embodied in his son and will refine them to be holy as he is holy, all for the purpose of being with him eternally. It's not just temporary. This is eternal work that he does. It's no longer being separated by sin, but in reconstituted communion and fellowship like there was in the garden before the fall. This certainty is based in the truth itself, the truth, God, who is truth, John 17, and no lie is of the truth. First John, thus God cannot lie. Numbers 23. Paul says, God promised this salvation and this, this return to Eden, if you will, before the ages began. That's right here, right here, where I love the original language. The Old Testament, if you aren't familiar, was written originally in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. And the original language here in the Greek, it, the, the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write, this beautiful wordplay. This little section literally reads like this. In the hope of eternal life, which God, free from all deceit, announced with certainty before time eternal. The promise of eternal life and the salvation of God's chosen people was not an afterthought. It was never a plan B. The promise of eternal life and salvation was promised before time began, from eternity to eternity. Is that not amazing? We can't even fathom that. But look at our text. How, how would we know this eternal plan of grace and reconciliation? Ah, here. Verse 3 again, I, I love the original language. Speaking of God, this is what it says. And in his own time manifested his word through preaching. In God's own sovereign time and plan, when he deemed it correct, he brought about his plan of salvation unto eternal life to display his mercy and his grace and his justice and his holiness. And this plan was brought about by God's own word, which was proclaimed and, pro and preached both by God himself and his chosen servants and messengers, culminating in the message and the messenger of Christ Jesus himself, the Son of God. And we know this word even today. It's not a word that we must decode. It's not like little orphan Annie ring like Ralphie has. Like we've got to sit down and listen and maybe put it in and we'll come out with something. It's not the Bible code. It's not Dan Brown's Da Vinci code, something silly like that. It's the eternal word. It is spoken by an eternal God in various times and in various ways. Hebrews 1, all of which have been recorded for us in Scripture right here before us, the Holy Bible. 
Lastly, here in verse 3, don't miss this. Paul says, all of these great truths, all of these, which again will be many of the great themes throughout this short letter, have been entrusted to him, given to him, right? Because he's a slave. He's a messenger. And who have they been given by? God, our Savior. Not God, my Savior. Not God, these. God, our Savior. Jew, Gentile, unifying faith. Titus, Gentile, Paul, Jew. Our faith. Our unifying Savior. Quickly, verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Titus is called Paul's true or genuine child, your translation may say. We, we know Paul never married according to his own testimony in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So Paul calls Titus, his adopted son, a title he also reserves for Timothy. But what is this adoption based in? I bet they like to go to, they have the same favorite gladiator in the gladiator games, don't they, right? They like to go fishing together. No, no. This adoption is based in the same unifying faith that Paul begins this letter with and will expound upon from here on out. The letter to Titus begins with faith and ends with faith. I, I want to give you some homework. Read the entire book of Titus this week. It's not long, 695 words again. It begins with faith and it ends with faith. And this, this concept, this is, this is a literary concept. Here's your, here's your big uh, seminary word to, to impress all your friends with this week. It's called an inclusio, like inclusion without the end on the end. And an inclusio is simply a bookend. Think of it like a, um, well, we've talked about sandwiches once today. We'll talk about them again. Think of it as a word sandwich. Everything between those two words is kind of like what that concept or word is about. So we have even right here in this opening section of Titus, a mini inclusio, a mini sandwich right here from the beginning. We have faith and faith. Everything between them in verse 1 and verse 4 is about faith, about the faith. Thus, the first four verses of Titus, they act almost as this microcosm, this small scale of what the whole letter is going to be about. And the whole letter has to do with the gospel and how the gospel gives, uh, to, uh, gives correct knowledge and correct living within God's people, both gathered for worship and in their individual daily lives. So these first four verses are like, um, they're like a raised garden bed that give you an idea of what the whole field we're cultivating will be like. Now, Paul ends with something many people miss. There are many skeptics who will claim that Jesus never claimed to be God and that only 200 or 300 years later, people came up with this idea that Jesus was God in the flesh. Well, they're wrong in two ways. Number one, Jesus did say that he was God in the flesh. They've obviously never read the Gospel of John, the entire thing. And two, right here in Titus, which was written about 25 to 30 years after Christ had resurrected and ascended, is an affirmation of Jesus' God. Look at the end of verse 4. Grace and peace. Grace was the common Greek salutation, kairain, and peace was the common Jewish salutation, hello, shalom. So again, this common unifying faith from who? God the Father in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Look back at the end of verse 3. Who did Paul say was the Savior, the common unifying Savior there? God. Now, who does he say is Savior in verse 4 here? Jesus. Same title. Jesus is God and God saves. Amen. So, here we go. I guess that means we can get out of here, right? What are we going to do with all this? If, if we ever hear a sermon that we can't apply to our lives, then we're merely having correct knowledge with without knowing how to apply it to ourselves. 
If we merely unpack the text and never apply it to our lives, we are the exact opposite of the godly people that Titus talks about. We merely know great truths and never act on them, and we are called to know the Word and to do the Word. So this morning, I want to give you two points of application from the text this morning. Two points that I think that you'd be able to take with you and apply to your life. The first one is this. You know the message of the unifying faith found in the knowledge of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second is this. If you say you do know this message, does your life reflect it? This call unto you, beloved, this morning is the same thing that will be repeated over and over and over in Titus because this is pertinent. We must know this. We must have the answer to this. We must be assured that we have the correct answer and the correct uh, living according to this. So, do you know the message of the unifying faith found in the knowledge of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know even a basic understanding of the gospel, like this bare-bones, stick-man style, the gospel of the good news, that God himself has come to save rebellious sinners from everlasting punishment and death in the person and work of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who then restores those rebellious sinners, men and women, back to the fellowship they had their creator, that they must have with their creator. The gospel of Jesus gives men and women actual purpose because the creator knows exactly what he created them for. Do you know this unifying faith? Uh, A faith that reconciles you to God and to your neighbor. If you do, do you desire a deeper understanding of this beautiful truth of the gospel? The gospel is not the ticket into the dance. The, the gospel is the ticket and the dance and the after prom and everything. It's not just an entry into bigger stuff. The gospel is everything. Do you desire to know more about it and more about God's word and to commune with him in prayer and in fellowship with his people? If you do not know this truth, hear me today. You have been told it. You have heard it before your, your own uh, presence today. If today you hear his voice and you have, not through me, but through his written word, do not harden your heart. You must, you must repent of your sins. Turn from your evil ways. Follow Christ. Obey him. Serve him. Be his slave. Be his messenger. Because there is no freedom for freedom's sake. We are all slaves and messengers of something. You have been called to be a servant of God, not yourself, not the government, not the next trend, not what makes you feel good, none of these things. You are either a slave to Christ or a slave to sin and death. The yoke of Christ is easy. His burden is light. His servants aren't whipped and chained like it's chattel south slavery. That is what sin will do to you, and it will convince you every time the whip hits your back that it's good. No, the servant of Christ is transformed into an heir adopted into his own kingdom. Slaves and servants become princes and princesses. To quote Joshua, hear me this morning. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. Choose him. If you say you know the gospel truth, this glorious unifying faith, does your life and do your actions reflect it? See, there's a chain of command in the opening of this letter this morning. Don't miss it. Don't miss this. Servant, messenger, that means chosen by someone else, right? It means chosen. Chosen by God. Faith, something given by this master, giving way to what correct knowledge and giving way to what correct living based in what a correct hope. If you hear today and profess with your mouth, Of course, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. And your actions do not match your mouth. Hear me, you are a liar. And you are demonic. (gasps) I'm not saying that you're demon-possessed. What I'm saying is that you have the same mentality that demons have. Rebellious angels. James 2, 14 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, I'm a Christian. Well, James 2.19, right after this. You believe that God is one? You do well. You believe that God is one? This right here is a reference to the Shekhma of Deuteronomy, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's like their, their, their anthem, almost, their, their cry of, of orthodoxy. We believe that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You believe that, that, that God is one? You do well. You're, you say you're a Christian? You believe Jesus died on the cross for your sin? You, that's great. Even the demons believe that, and at least they shudder. And you say, I'm a Christian, and live exactly like this hell-bent world out here that we're called to go and make disciples in and change and see kingdom come in. You look just like that and say, oh, I'm a Christian. The demons, they wouldn't even do that. At least they shudder. To say you have this private faith in Jesus and that's all you need, what you end up doing is believing and participating in a doctrine of demons. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You cannot do that. You can't save yourself. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. God saves his people not because of what they do, but saves them to do something. God did not create Adam to just know him and like, here, Adam, sit on this log. Here, I made a woman for you. What do you think? What do you want to call that? A beaver? Ah, that's great. Big buck teeth and a weird tail. What about this one? A platypus? Okay, that's great. No, God created Adam to know and to do. Why? Why did God create him to know and to do? Because man is made in God's image, reflecting him and God is knowledge. God is knowledge. God creates. He works. We reflect Him. Saving faith gives way to correct thinking, which gives way to correct living. You can't reverse the order, and you cannot have one without the other. And the thing is this. Many who proclaim Christ either proclaim Him only by name or they think that they can proclaim themselves before him by doing good works and mimicking charity. Many who proclaim Christ have no godliness. They have no fruit, no works that match their mouth and their supposed knowledge. And unfortunately, many of these are members of churches and even leaders in churches. The plight of modern evangelicalism is trying to, to tell you all you have to do is repeat a little prayer, say you believe in Jesus, and you're in. That's it. No heart change, nothing, no hand change of living differently. Why? Because modern evangelicalism is focused on numbers and focused on simply being a business and a brand. They have a little to no care for your eternal soul. They boast of huge numbers. Oh, 300 people at the local mega church made a profession of faith today. And those 300 had a little pep talk sermon after being emotionally manipulated by a light show and gushy music. But hey, they said the, the ABC prayer. Admit you're a, a sinner, believe in God and confess Jesus as Lord. Yeah, and those 300 out in the community with their megachurch country club sticker on the back of their car still act the exact same way before they prayed the prayer. As Worsby says, we have been substituting statistical numbers for spiritual realities, when it, which is something like reading the recipe instead of eating the meal. This is the plight of the modern church. Don't just say you know God Know him and then live like that. Live like it. Put your money where your mouth is. And you don't want to, to do this in vain, do you? You want to know what it's like to, to live like him? You're like, I don't know, I guess. You want to know how to live for him? It's not, it's not something you have to decode. It's not something that you have to go find. It's not esoteric. 
It's in his written word. It's plain. It's right here in front of you. It's right in front of you. You have more opportunities than any other civilization to have a Bible in front of you or in your ear holes at all times. Today, each of you, I, I call you to think about your life. Are you a true child in the common faith? Do you have a knowledge of God? It doesn't have to be perfect knowledge. It doesn't have to be PhD level, but it has to be growing. Maybe today is the first day of that knowledge. Maybe it is. Then cultivate it. Cultivate the seed of his word and see it grow and transform your life. Your bare field, see it turn into a harvest of true life. And this knowledge, this common faith, is it working out into all areas of your life? Do you profess Christ but slander your neighbor? Do you profess Christ and then steal? Do you profess Christ and then view pornography? Do you profane your profession? Be a slave unto him. For you were bought with a price, the price of the life of God's own son that you may be like that very son, a son adopted, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Silver City, hear me today. You are called to have a faith that is head and heart and hands. Correct knowledge, correct living, correct emotions, correct everything based in the knowledge of the truth of God and the scriptures. Would it be that today as we launch out, as we pop out of the ground that the people of this place would, would know and so act as the scriptures tell us to do so? Would it be that we read the field guide and live out the map to live long in the land and see the harvest of holiness and godliness in our lives and change this city and change this community 30, 60, and 100 fold? May it be that we do not have sound heads and rotten hearts. May it be that we have the right seed and not rancid soil. May God give the watering, may God give the growth, and may He give the increase. Grace and peace be with you all. Let's pray.